Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And today we are in our fifth and our last sermon in the series entitled Images of the Church. And so what we've been doing the past five weeks is just looking at one image, a biblical image or metaphor that uh, God gives to us in his word of what the church is. The first image we saw was the church is God's field, meaning the church is the place of primary spiritual growth. And then, of course, we saw the church as God's family. Uh, We're not just people who believe the same thing. We're people who belong to one another. Then we consider the church as Christ's bride, uh, meaning we are a people who are undeservedly loved and covenantally committed to, which then in turn we love others and commit to them. Uh, Last week, we looked at this fourth image of the church as God's body, meaning that in every healthy church, every member matters. Because every member matters, every member should participate. Today, we're concluding our series by looking at this fourth image, and that's the church as God's temple. So please stand with me. And your standing is an act of worship as we read God's word and receive God's word, for it is our very life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. Hear now God's word. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Please be seated. And let's pray once more. Father, the promise that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever is our only source of hope in an ever-changing world that is shifting and is fading. We need to hear from our God the eternal truth that he's given to us in the eternal unchanging word. I pray that you would open our ears to hear and to receive and to understand, and then as your people to respond by living according to the truth that you have spoken to us. Do this, O Lord, for your glory's sake, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today is an interesting one because in it, Apostle Paul in verse 21 refers to the church as a holy temple in the Lord. Now, Most of us probably, when we think of temple, uh, it's a bit confusing because temples are associated with so many other world religions. Uh, We think of Hinduism or Buddhism, and they worship in temples. And yet here, Paul calls the church a temple. But add to that layer of confusion also this. If you've read the New Testament, you know that when Jesus came and he began his public ministry, one of the very first things he taught in John chapter 2 was that he looked at the temple in Jerusalem, and he told us that he was the fulfillment of that temple. Not only that, but two chapters later in John 4, Jesus would say about the temple that his followers would no longer worship in Jerusalem at the temple, but the worshipers that the Father desires, the Father is seeking, are worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so the Jewish, uh, the, the Jerusalem temple is no longer a central feature of the Christian faith, it's a central feature of what was the Jewish faith. So the question remains then, why does Paul call the church a temple? Now, today's message is going to be unlike uh, some of the other ones in this series in that it'll be a bit more theological. But stay with me and stick with me, because as we dive deep into what uh, Paul means by calling the church's temple, uh, we'll find it very incredibly uh, enriching as we come to understand what it is uh, Paul is telling us. Now, the reason the church is called God's temple is because he's communicating this point, that in the gathering of God's people, God dwells uniquely by the presence of his Holy Spirit as a foretaste of heaven. 
that in the gathering of God's people, God dwells uniquely by the presence of his Holy Spirit as a foretaste of heaven. So in that way, the church is a bit of heaven on earth. And in the church, we experience realities temporarily that we will live in eternally. Now, our chapter today in Ephesians 2 is one of the greatest chapters in uh, the Bible. And at the beginning of it, Paul talks about the work that God does in saving us from our sins, that we who were dead in our trespasses, God makes together, uh, makes alive uh, together with Christ. And he talks about this vertical reconciliation that's happened between us and God. And Paul should have, at least as we would think, would stop there and say, praise God, amen. But Paul then switches And he shows the implication of how our vertical reconciliation with God now is tied in with our horizontal reconciliation with one another. And that's what verses 11 to 22 are all about. That all of the enmity and strife and division between Jews and Gentiles, all that is eliminated is broken, is destroyed by the cross of Christ. That horizontally, the people of God, now those who trust in Jesus, can finally be one new man. So he says, where there was once division, the gospel unites. And where there was once enmity, the gospel brings peace. And where there was once fracture, the gospel mends. And therefore, as believers are united to Jesus and united to one another, the intimate kind of union that's shared is very special indeed. That the union we have with one another as the people of God, as the church, is not superficial, but is deeply spiritual. That our Christian identity isn't a similarity that we share with others like, oh, you go to that gym? Oh, I go there too. You shop at that Costco? I go to that Costco too. You send your kids to that school? So do my kids go to that school. You live in that development? So do I. You see, those are superficial associations and the church is nothing like that. You see, what we have in common is a lot more than, oh, we attend the same church together. And yet for many Christians, sadly, that is the way that we primarily identify ourselves with one another. Paul is saying something different. Paul is saying you are joined together in such a holy, intimate union that you are God's holy temple. You and I, the dwelling place of the Spirit. Now, before Paul arrives at that point, he uses two other images to describe the increasing intimacy between believers. And the first is this. The first image in verse 19, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And Paul's point here is this, that regardless of your race or ethnicity or nationality, we are not strangers to one another. We are fellow countrymen. We are people who enjoy the same citizenship, not here on earth, but one in heaven. Meaning that you and I and you and the believers next to you who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are destined toward the same homeland. We are all men and women in exile, sojourners who are heading to the same homeland. And as a result of that, we pledge our allegiance, first and foremost, to Jesus Christ. Above any earthly government or institution or human leader, we belong to Jesus and his kingdom. And the passport that we wield is not a passport of any particular country, but a passport of heaven. And so in Christ, we share a same homeland. That's Paul's first point. But then he's going to go a little bit further and show an increasing intimacy because he says, in Christ, you not only share the same homeland, in Christ, you also share the same home. In verse 19, believers are described like this, as members of the household of God. 
when you fly internationally, let's say you're coming back home, you're coming back to the United States, most likely the people on the same returning flight are also fellow Americans. And so you share the same citizenship, you share the same homeland. And so when you touch down and you get off the plane and you get to the customs line, there are usually two lines and you both head toward the line that says U.S. citizens. And then you both flash the same passport with the very similar embarrassing picture that the people took of you. And then you head to the luggage claimed, you, you get your, your luggage. And once you pass through the double doors, that's where what you share ends. Because although you are citizens of the same homeland, as you pass through the same double doors, you are headed toward different homes. Now, what Apostle Paul is saying is that our union with one another, our intimacy, our relationship with one another is not simply that we also belong to the same um, homeland, but also to the same home, that we are family, that, that once we arrive, we go to the same house. Because we not only share uh, similar citizenship and, and share the same king, we share the same Abba Father and the family name. We are far more than members of the same church. We are family. But then Paul goes one step further than that. But he goes in a place that's not quite expected. Because you would think, well, what's closer than family? Maybe he's going to say bride, spousal commitment. No, what does Paul say? Look at verses 20 and 21. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, on a surface level reading, a temple building seems far less intimate than a family household, right? A a temple, a a building is cold, it's hard, it's material, but, but a family, a home is warm and welcoming. But what does Paul have in mind? Well, Paul has in mind an organic relationship. And so if you look carefully, he describes the stones as as joined together and as growing like a living organism. You see, the picture that Paul has in mind is increasing intimacy in this way. If you are fellow uh, citizens of the same country, then you can live in Pennsylvania while someone else lives in Texas, while someone else lives in uh, Washington. And you can be the same uh, citizens of the same homeland yet live so far apart. Now, if you are the same home, you've lived in the same home, you're a family, right? And some of you parents experience this, right? Yeah, you live in the same home, but you never see your kids because they're locked away in their room. And somebody else is in their room. Somebody's in the dining room. Someone is in the basement. And so, yes, you, you are in closer proximity to one another, but it's not the closest proximity. But what's a temple? Right, First Peter calls us living stones. And so what is happening in a temple? It's brick laid upon brick, stone laid upon stone, right up next to one another. And Paul is saying that's the kind of intimacy we share as the people of God. But what's so special and unique about that kind of intimacy is as stone is laid upon stone and brick laid upon brick, we're not some kind of grocery store or shopping mall or courthouse or office building. That we are formed into the temple of God. And his Holy Spirit dwells among us. This is so special and so unique. You know, in the garden, in the past, God used to dwell with Adam and Eve. He would walk with them in the cool of the day. And then later in redemptive history, God dwelled with Israel in a physical temple. And he was was present with them in a glory cloud. But now, now how does God reside with us? God dwells with the church by his spirit in a way that's so unique and has never been done before in history. 
God is present with his people. Now, on the one hand, you can say, well, isn't God present with all people? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at all times. So God is always present with everyone in every place. But the Bible also speaks about God's presence with his people in a special covenantal way. That he is with us in a way that he is not with others in the world. And this distinction is actually very important to understand the uniqueness of what the church is as God's temple. A couple of years ago, uh, before I came to Cornerstone, um, I had a lazy afternoon and I decided to go watch a movie in the theaters, an afternoon matinee. Uh, and I chose the afternoon, you know, so that if I came across any, you know, I, so I wouldn't come across anybody so I can avoid all the people. Uh, but of course, in God's humor at that exact theater, at that exact hour, watching that same exact movie, uh, I did run into somebody. Uh, luckily, it was a pastor colleague, and I saw him in the concession line as I entered into the theater, but praise the Lord, he was by himself as well. So I went up to him, and I said, hey, brother, how's it going? Oh, you're here by yourself. And he looked at me, and he said, no, actually, my boys asked me to take them to the movie. They're in the bathroom. And at that exact moment, his two boys come running out, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. And they asked me the question that I was dreading the whole time. Who are you here with? I was so tempted to fake a pastoral emergency phone call and, and get out of there. Why? You know, because I was in the theater, because I was surrounded by people, because they were present there with me, you know, could I still say, oh, well, I'm with everybody. Everyone's my friend. You see, people were around me. People were present with me, but they weren't present with me. In a similar way, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's present with everybody. There's nowhere you can run that he can't see or know what you're doing. In fact, he sees and knows the very thoughts of your heart. So God is present everywhere. But the Bible is saying that God is present with his people in a very special way. By promise and by covenant, by relationship and fellowship, God is with his people. God is with you and me in a unique, intimate way, in our gathering, in the midst of his people. And that's going to make the church like nothing else in the world. That's, that's going to make the church not like, like, like membership to any club or organization or fraternity or sorority. It's going to make the church heavenly, not just earthly. And to get the magnitude of what Apostle Paul is really getting at, you have to understand the story of God's dwelling with man. Because Paul is not writing in a vacuum Paul is writing with all of the Old Testament before him and all of the rest of the New Testament ahead of him. And here's what we see in this story. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there was no temple. And there was no temple, not because God didn't dwell with man, but because the garden was the temple. The garden was the place where God dwelled with Adam and Eve in unbroken, unhindered fellowship. But of course, after our first parents sinned, they proved themselves unfit to be in the holy presence of God. They were banished. And thus began the need of mediation. Thus began the need for the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system. So what happened? In the desert, after Egypt, when Israel was set free, they were wandering in the desert. And God dwelled with his people, yes, but he dwelled with his people in a very special, unique, covenantal way in a giant tent. And we call that tent the tabernacle. God says in Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of their tabernacle. And so God was with Adam and Eve in the garden, and the garden was the temple. Then God was with a wandering Israel through the tabernacle. He said, my presence would dwell with you in a special way there. But then later in Israel's history, during the time of the monarchy, King Solomon builds a physical temple in Jerusalem. And now God is uniquely with his people in the temple. So we read in 1 Kings 8, verse 10 to 11. And this is by far greater than any red carpet treatment ever. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God came and he condescended and he descended into the temple in the, great, in the form of this great glory cloud to be uniquely and intimately and relationally with his people. So here we see three steps, right? We see God's presence with his people in the garden. We see God's presence with Israel in the desert through a tent. We see God's people in the promised land through a temple. But then this is where the heartache comes in. This is where the heartbreak comes in. Because in Israel's history, enemies would come and invade. And when they came, they destroyed the temple. They exiled Israel from out of Jerusalem. So now the question is, where is God's presence? How can God dwell with us? But the story doesn't end there. Because God in his great mercy will say, you know what? Enough with the temple. I'm going to one-up the temple. I'll dwell with them in another way, a better way, a more personal way. And so we're told that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, his son, Jesus, the word who was God in the beginning. And apostle John will attest to that in John chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself came and he tabernacled among his people, that the holy God came down to dwell among an unholy people, not through the cloth of a tent, not through the stones of a building, but through flesh and blood, God came to be with his people. And Jesus knew this identity. He knew who he was. And so when he came, he opened his mouth and he taught to those listening. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And he wasn't speaking about brick and mortar. He was talking about bones and muscles. And so apostle John clarifies to those who wouldn't understand. He writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus Christ came to be that tabernacle, that temple, God's presence with us. And thus he is given that most beautiful and precious of names, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not just a name for those who feel lonely and scared and are in a big city all by themselves. Oh, God is with us. I mean, yes, certainly that is true. But Emmanuel means that God no longer needs a temple to dwell with his sinful people. That the holy has come to dwell with the unholy. We just did Genesis to the Gospels. Now, it's going to take you two years to read that in your Bible reading plan. We did it in 10 minutes. But what we see here is essentially this. All of the Old Testament, right? The garden, the tabernacle, the temple, it's longing for something. It's looking forward. And in this one time, this special moment in history, Jesus Christ comes. And he comes as the fulfillment of the temple. That he came and through his mediation as the final priest, as the final sacrifice, he made it so that the holy could be in the presence of the unholy without entirely consuming them. And the unholy can be in the presence of the holy without being entirely consumed. 
And yet, and yet, as glorious and as grand as what Jesus is and what he came to do, that's not the end. There is still more. Because God's story doesn't end with the Gospels. God's story ends in Revelation. And in that book, the same Apostle John is given a vision where the curtains of the new heavens and the new earth are pulled back for him to take a look. It's like waiting for your favorite author to finish that trilogy of books and you get to visit his writing room and you get to take a peek at that manuscript that's not yet been published. Apostle John is welcomed in a vision into the heavens and he sees where God is taking the story. And he records his experience for us when he writes in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the insight that Apostle John gets as he peeks into heaven. But when he does, John notices something shocking and surprising. And what he's shocked and surprised by is not the presence of something there that shouldn't be there. What he's shocked and surprised is the absence of something there that he thought would be there. So he records in Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In Genesis In Genesis, the garden itself was the temple, but in Revelation, God himself is the temple. There is no temple in the new city because all of those Old Testament images were shadows and types pointing to this future and fuller reality. But here's what's amazing. That fuller reality wasn't even Christ. That Christ came in order to secure for us the fuller reality, God's dwelling with us for eternity. That's where history is headed. That's the end to which God is writing and authoring your story and my story. That's the goal and the reward for which Christ came and died to secure and then give us. That final glorious consummated reality of God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, dwelling with his people for all eternity, that was God's plan from the very beginning. So what we read in the Bible is a record of how that final reality was breaking into the present at different moments. God's plan to dwell with his people broke into the Garden of Eden. And yet it was forfeited and lost through our first parents' sins. That reality broke into the moving tabernacle. And yet that tabernacle was packed up and moved again and again because Israel was outside the Promised Land. That final reality broke into the Jerusalem temple. And yet that temple was destroyed by invading armies because of the people's unfaithfulness to God's covenant. Then one day, that temple broke into this world and came to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to us in body and in blood. And he was killed and he was crucified. That was all part of God's plan. You see, because Jesus came both as fulfillment and foreshadow. 
all that the Old Testament was longing for, God's presence with his people, God's dwelling with us, all that the Old Testament longing for, Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment. But when Jesus Christ came, he also said, I've come to secure for you, to offer to you, and to promise you a greater reality yet to come. Revelation 21. And in the age of the Spirit, the age in which the church now exists, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we, the people of God, we experience the inbreaking of Revelation 21 into the year 2021. In our very midst, like, like the rays of the sun breaking through a dark, stormy cloud, the hope of our reality one day is breaking in and it's manifested in the church. In the church, the future, final, eschatological, consummated, glorious vision is experienced and tasted. And that's what we mean when we say a bit of heaven is breaking into earth and is manifested in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why in light of that truth, Apostle Paul pens these words, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're not just fellow citizens. We're not just family members in Christ. We are living stones joined and built together to be God's temple here on earth. In our midst, in our gathering, in our worshiping, in our assembling, we get a foretaste of heaven as God is present in us and with us by his spirit. That's what makes the church so special. So Cornerstone, I wanted to end this series with this image because this image is very different than the other images. You can't hear a sermon on the church being God's temple and really do anything with it. This sermon is not a sermon tell, telling you to do something. This sermon is a sermon telling you who you are. Because the church isn't ultimately God's people because of what we do for God. The church is God's people because of what he's done for us, what he's making us. All the exhortation, all the application that we considered and the church is God's field, God's family, God's bride, God's body, all of that. None of that actually makes us the people of God. We are the people of God because of Christ. And that's why Paul will say in verse 20 that Christ is the cornerstone of the church. He is the one on which we must be built and grounded because we are his. He is our hope, our security. He is the guarantee the guarantee that the church will be the church triumphant one day. Because you see the earthly temple, earthly temple was built, it was destroyed. It was rebuilt only to be destroyed again. But Christ came as the true temple and he was utterly destroyed on the cross for our sins so that he would raise us up to be his spiritual temple and we will never be destroyed. That's the promise of Christ. It's a cornerstone. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you who you are. We are God's holy temple here on this earth. So let's shine and radiate his presence and glory to the watching world. Pray with me.